0: You know, one of the, my favorite things I get to do as your pastor is I get to see some really cool things that the Lord is doing, but oftentimes it's through you. I got a note this week uh, from a visitor that visited last week. It was their first time gathering with us as a faith family, and uh, they sent me a very kind note, and I asked them, hey, do I have the freedom to share this with our our, our church family? And she said, Absolutely. And so uh, I wanted to share this with you. Um, she said some very kind words about our worship gathering and our family ministry. But then she wrote, "My husband's comment: Leaving today. I don't know about you, but I haven't had that many people interested in me for the two years we've been at our own church. We're very excited to visit again and hopefully find a small group too. I get these these comments frequently." And I just want to say thank you. Like, praise God. I'm so proud of you. When you are intentionally engaging visitors and guests and making them feel a part, saying, listen, anybody can get in on this. Okay, being intentional. Hey, do you have a life group? Hey, come come, sit with us. Okay, come to lunch with us. Hey, let's go get coffee. Engaging and inviting people. This is what helps us to continue to become healthy as a faith family. So thank you for doing that. And let's continue to do that all the more because it's gospel hospitality. We're saying you're more important than me. I want you to be a part of this. Get in on this. And it's just a beautiful act of grace. And so what I'd like to To do is just take a moment and just to pray. And let's just posture our hearts low and prepare to hear a word from God's Word. Father, I'm so grateful for your church and how beautiful she is. And Lord, I'm thankful that on that great day when Jesus, you will present your church to yourself without blemish or spots, she will be washed and clean. We, the bride of Christ, those who have been purchased by your blood called by your name, I pray you would set us apart. Help us to continue to follow hard after you, Jesus. May the the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We pray now, Lord, as we open your word, that the gospel would be clear, we would have ears to hear, soft hearts, sharp minds, and eagerness to study the word. Lord, may we be like the Bereans who received the word with gladness. That we examine the word to see if these things are so. So we pray you would bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a society that says all religions are pretty much the same. The religious pluralistic culture in which we live claims that the various religions will all ultimately lead to the same God. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all of these are different streams that will ultimately lead to the fine, final and same destination. Now, that sounds all well and good in the ears of the world, but Jesus has a better word. In John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You see, Jesus refuses to be put into a category in which he is one of many ways. He claims to be the way. He is the only way because he claims to be God himself. Well, when we get to Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus, he's being charged with not keeping the traditions of Judaism. And the way he responds, Jesus proves that he is greater than religious tradition. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going through a sermon series as a faith family called On the Move, in which we are walking through the gospel of Mark together. And if you've missed any of the messages so far, you can go back and listen to them on the website at gowestwood.org, or you can download them and listen to them for free on our Westwood app. So far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus on the move. He has healed the sick. He is preaching sermons. He's driving out demons. He is calling disciples. His fame is spreading throughout the region of Galilee, and people are flocking from miles around to come and see him, and to be healed by him, and to see him perform these miracles. Well, as his fame is spreading, as his ministry is gaining momentum, religious leaders called Pharisees are getting more and more angry with Jesus. They're jealous of the crowds that he's gathering. They're jealous of their adoration of him. And they're angry because he continually speaks out against them. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus has five confrontations with the Pharisees. The first we saw in chapter 2, verse 7, where they questioned him. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The second one is chapter 2, verse 16. They questioned his disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now we enter into the third controversy with the Pharisees in verse 18. So Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 18, Scripture says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why did John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst in the skins the, the, excuse me. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh. Wine skins. We saw last week in verse 14 where Jesus called Levi, who's also known as Matthew, to leave the tax collecting business and to come follow Jesus. Matthew he threw a party and to honor Jesus and he invites all of his buddies over who are sinners and tax collectors and outcasts and he's eating a meal with them this angered the Pharisees because they thought why in the world would a holy man like Jesus be eating a meal spending time with people who are so messed up well Jesus tells them it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then Jesus, we see here, feasting with Matthew, feasting with his friends, and these religious leaders cross-examining him about why he would do this, and they begin to ask him why his disciples aren't fasting. Why are they not keeping up with these religious traditions? I want you to notice in the text, How Jesus proves that he is greater than religious tradition. Notice first a prideful accusation. A prideful accusation. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast? But your disciples do not fast. The text tells us that John the Baptist... Disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. At this point, John the Baptist was in prison and his disciples have not transferred their allegiance to Jesus yet. And here they are, verse 18, joining the Pharisees in a biweekly fast. Now there is nothing wrong with fasting. We look back in Mark chapter one and cross-reference it back to Matthew chapter three where Jesus is um, he's being tempted in the desert and there he fasts for 40 days. In fact, Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 how to fast. He says this, Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. For they, speaking of the Pharisees, make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, a faithful motivation for fasting is not the public praise of man, but the private reward of God. But this was not the motivation of these religious leaders. Now, according to the Old Testament, Jews were commanded to fast only one day a year. That's the day of atonement. And yet at some point after the exile, a tradition was started where devout Jews would fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Again, nothing wrong with fasting twice a week. But it's not biblically mandated. So what's happening here? These religious leaders, they're making their tradition into a command that they're expecting everybody else to follow along with them, which, by the way, is legalism. I like Tim Keller's definition of legalism. He says this, legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean Before God. The Pharisees, they were looking to their religious traditions to make them acceptable, to make themselves clean before God. You see, according to religion, you have to work in order to earn God's favor. Okay, all the world religions say you have to do these things and you receive salvation. But Jesus says that's not it at all. You're not trusting in your good work. The gospel says you trust in the good and finished work of Jesus for you. We don't earn salvation. We rest in the salvation that Jesus earned for us. Your salvation is not about how hard you try, all the good that you do, all the religious traditions and things that you accomplish, those checks, uh, those boxes that you check, of all the good things that you do, they don't save you. Jesus saves you. You're resting in his finished work. You're trusting in his work, not your own. And here are these religious leaders. They are fasting twice a week, trying to earn God's favor, trying to see God show them favor and blessing for what they're doing. But they're also expecting everybody else to keep their man-made rules. They're forcing their religious traditions upon Jesus and his disciples. But I also want you to notice that the tone here, verse 18, it's not out of curiosity, but it's anger. Verse 18, why did John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast? The tone of this question is one in which they're not wanting new information, they're scolding Jesus for his poor leadership. The question was phrased as a rebuke. Parents, Have your kids ever done something foolish? Okay, well, let me finish the question first, okay? (laughs) Okay, they've done something foolish, and then you follow up with this question. What were you thinking? When we ask that, we're not looking for new information. We're rebuking them for their stupidity. That's the tone of verse 18. They're rebuking Jesus. Why do your disciples not fast? Okay, there's this sense in which they're accusing Jesus of his poor leadership. They thought that rigorous fasting would earn God's favor. And so they created this superficial system apart from Scripture that they thought if they kept these rules, it would merit God's blessing. But hear me, God is not interested in religious ritual divorced from a personal relationship with him. God detests outward religion that is separated from inward worship. You see, when Israel, when they were going through the religious motions before the exile, they did not have a genuine love for God from their heart, and they did not live for the Lord. So the Lord says in Isaiah 1, verse 15, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. You see, outward religious actions that are not tethered to a heart of worship and righteous living is unacceptable to God. God rejects self-righteous religiosity that comes from a heart of pride. And that's what the Pharisees are doing in verse 18. So Jesus responds with number two, a nuptial explanation. A nuptial explanation, verse 19. Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. So Jesus responds to their prideful accusation with a parable about a wedding. So he's stating the obvious here. Fasting is for times of sorrow, times of grief, times of reflection, times of repentance, but not a wedding. A wedding is a joyful event, the wedding guests have come to celebrate. Well, these Pharisees, verse 18, they're accusing Jesus of neglecting the rules and rituals. So Jesus hits the ball right back into their core even harder and says, you guys are the ones who are missing the point. They had failed to realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament was in their presence. Yahweh had finally come to be with his bride. Their Savior, the Messiah, had arrived. It was time to celebrate. The fullness of time had come. Jesus was here. The Messiah has arrived. Let's celebrate. And so Jesus is using wedding imagery to point these religious leaders to himself, who is the groom who has come for his bride. And so now that Jesus has come, the sadness of tradition was giving way to the gladness of Jesus. Have you ever heard of getting in wedding shape? Oftentimes, as a wedding approaches, people will exercise, they'll count their calories or even fast so that physically they can fit into a dress or into a tuxedo physically going out of the way to make sure that you're you're in good shape physically so you'll kind of sometimes starve yourself so that you can look really good on that day. But when that day comes, it ain't time to fast. It's like all bets are off. I'm making up for all the calories I gave up. I'm doubling up on them now. You see, on the day of the wedding, it's time not to fast, but to feast. And when the groom is there, Jesus says, it's time to celebrate. It's time to party. The groom is here. The one that Israel has been looking for has arrived. And so he pushes back and says that his disciples don't need to fast because the groom is with his people. But, verse 20, the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. That phrase, taken away, do you see that in verse 20? It means to be snatched away violently. Jesus is referencing a time when he, the groom, will violently be taken away from his disciples. What's he referencing? He's referencing his capture and crucifixion. You see, there's coming a day in which Jesus would be captured And he would be crucified. Now in Mark's gospel, this is Jesus' first reference to his impending death. You see, on that day, verse 20, when Jesus is taken away from him, that's when his disciples will fast. That's when they're going to weep. That's when they're going to mourn. In fact, the night of his capture, he says in John chapter 16, verse 20, he says, Truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. You see, Jesus is pointing them forward. Hey, there's going to come a point in which you're going to be very, very sorrowful. I'm going to be taken away from you. And they didn't quite understand what he was referencing, but he was pointing to his impending cross 24 hours later. He was about to suffer and die and that's when verse 20 the disciples are going to fast they're going to mourn they're going to weep but for now it's time for feasting it's time to rejoice the king has come and yet these religious leaders they didn't get it they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about they completely missed the point of his arrival and so then Jesus drives it home with number 3 two helpful illustrations Two helpful illustrations. These religious leaders were forcing their religious traditions onto others, and so Jesus gives two analogies to push back against their rituals. So what does he reference? Clothing and drinking. Laundry and the art of being a wine connoisseur. Notice these two gospel implications in the text the first gospel implication is that Jesus cannot be added to religious tradition. He cannot be added to religious tradition. Verse 21, he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse Tear is made. In sewing, if a piece of unshrunk cloth was used to patch up an old garment, the patch would shrink when it was washed, making the worse tear from when it was originally torn. You see, the point Jesus was making was that he did not come to patch up Judaism. The time had come for the Jews to put away their old garments of Mosaic law and to put on the new garment of the Messiah's reign. The old covenant was no longer binding on God's people because Jesus came to fulfill it and provide the new and better way. You see, Jesus is the new garment that destroys the old cloth of dead religion. Jesus is the new patch that destroys the religious tradition of Judaism. Jesus came to bring his kingdom. You see, under the old covenant, some people, they continually tried to earn God's favor. But the harder they tried, the more they failed. You see, keeping the law is kind of like running on a treadmill. You work really hard, but you don't get anywhere. You see, the people, they kept patching more and more laws. They started adding more and more rules in addition to scripture. And they just kept adding them and adding them. And Jesus says, if you're gonna add me, the whole thing's gonna rip apart. You see, he came to eliminate religious rituals and traditions that prevented people from experiencing the grace of God. Do you remember When Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 2, what they did? They went into hiding, and then they sewed fig leaves together to cover their shame. But God saw right through it. And so what does he do? Motivated by love, he sacrifices an animal. And he takes the skin, and he clothes them himself. You and I, outside of Christ, are just like Adam and Eve, weaving together fig leaves, trying to work up coverings for our shame. We'll do all these religious rituals and actions trying to earn God's favor, but God sees right through it. And so what does he do? He offers a sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, he clothes us with the sacrifice. You see, when you trust in Jesus, God clothes you in his righteousness. God takes away the old garments and he says, I'm gonna clothe you myself. I am gonna make a sacrifice and through this sacrifice, I'm gonna clothe you with my righteousness. What Jesus is doing here is saying, if you try to patch me on to an old garment, the whole thing's gonna fall apart because you cannot add me to have a religious system that works. Jesus is greater than religious traditions. He's not interested in trying to maintain these old religious rules and rituals. No, he came to clothe people in his righteousness. You see, God sent his son not to improve your behavior, but to transform your heart. He came to make you a new creation. We just sang this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. Jesus did not come to patch up your old life, but to give you a whole new life. And it's hidden in him. So Jesus cannot be added to religious tradition. But secondly, I want you to see Jesus cannot be contained in religious tradition. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. You see, new wineskins, they provided strength and elasticity to hold the wine as it would go through the fermentation process. The wineskins, they were usually made of goat skin and they were held held together so that the wine could ferment inside and then it could be poured out of the wineskin. Well, over time, the skins would get old. They could not take on new wine. If new wine was put into the old, old wineskins, the fermentation process would lead the skins to explode, which, by the way, I think that'd be pretty cool to see. But the point Jesus is making is that Judaism was like an old wineskin. It would be completely destroyed by the new wine of the gospel. You see, Jesus claimed that something new was happening. Something new was, uh, had arrived and old brittle wineskins wine could not contain him. You see, Jesus came to establish the new covenant in his blood. Jesus is the new wine. And these religious traditions of these Pharisees, these, any other religion out there that tries to contain Jesus, they simply can't. Here are these religious leaders. They're doing these religious works, hoping that their efforts would merit them eternal life. Before we get too far down the road, what about you? Do you find yourself thinking that you are right before God because of your church attendance, because of your giving record, because of your baptism? Because of your good works, all good things, but they do not save. You see, world religions are looking to anything and everything in which they can work and earn the favor and the praise of God because of what they do, which leads to pride. The gospel robs us of pride and says, it's not up to you. It's not in your strength. It's not how smart you are, how well-behaved you are, how well you keep my laws. It's based upon Jesus and how he perfectly kept God's law for you, how he gladly gave his life for all the ways that you never could. He's buried and rises again on the third day so that those who trust in him, we are rescued. We're banking our souls, not on our religious works, but upon the works of Jesus for us. So this morning if you find yourself clinging tighter and tighter to your own self righteousness, let it go. And turn to Jesus. Go to the one who came to transform you. You see, Jesus did not come to give you a makeover of your life, but a complete takeover of your life. He came to make you brand knew. These religious leaders kept looking to their religious traditions because in their mind, their good works earned them salvation. But they missed the point. Salvation is not found in good works, but in Christ alone. Therefore, your impact point is this. Kenneth, what are you calling us to do? Abandon religious traditions and embrace Jesus Christ. If you find your heart trending towards wanting to grab hold of religion, abandon it. It cannot save you. This is why we need Jesus, who is the fresh garment. He is the new wine. He cannot be contained. He cannot be added to a system. It's just Jesus. And so this morning, if you do not know the Lord, it begins by you today saying, God, I'm done trying. I'm not going to try and earn my my way. I'm not going to try and get your applause by what I do. I'm going to rest in the work of Jesus for me and trust that what he did on the cross was sufficient to cover all of my sin. World religions keep saying do jesus says it all has been done it is finished at the cross